Again, Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, made their long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame, turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you're just joining us this summer, we're doing a Sunday series called Songs to Carry On. If you've ever driven on a long road trip from one place to another, you know just how important having good music is for that road trip. Specifically, uh, an album or a playlist of great travel songs that help you and those traveling with you carry on to get to your destination. That's why we're spending this summer going through these psalms, the Old Testament psalms of ascent which are these sung prayers that were designed to help people struggling through transitions. These psalms were compiled as Israel's best of playlist for a journey that was taken at least three times a year. So as you and I navigate our own transitions, simple transition of summer, uh, it's nice, a little nicer out, things are a little more flexible, you meet, see your neighbors a little bit more, regular transitions like a new job, a new relationship, a new home, the multi-level transition of life post-pandemic, where we've had all these rhythms of life interrupted, we've had some maybe a new one or two begin, it's a different kind of life we're moving into, or just life this side of the grave, which is a transition in and of itself. These sung prayers are meant to help us carry on, carry on with God, carry on with others, carry on with ourselves. And speaking of of great travel songs, every once in a while, a band will release two songs, two songs that are meant to go together. They're often called, in the industry, companion songs. And probably the most famous pair of companion songs was created by the legendary British rock band Queen. All right, so uh, I'm going to play a clip of these songs as because they're meant to be together, transitioning from one or another. So feel free to sing along or play air guitar or whatever you want to do as, as we hear it. Okay, that's all we really have time for, but uh, this transitions, so you hear the song go from We Will Rock You to We Are the Champions, eventually. We'll keep, we are the champions, my friends, we'll keep on fighting till the end, et cetera, et cetera. We only have so much time in this sermon. That's all we get. Now, I got to tell you, the top comment on the YouTube page of these songs were of a guy 
who explained he once heard them on a radio station play We Will Rock You by itself, and they cut to a commercial break. Without playing, we are the champions along with it. And the radio station had so many people call in during the commercial break that the DJ had to replay both songs and issue a public apology because he got dozens and dozens and dozens of complaints of our listeners being like, you can't do this. Why? Because they are meant to be together. They're meant to be a pair of companion songs. One was created to give a team confidence and swagger, and the other a celebration for the team that won that competition. Well, there are a few times companion songs happen in the songs of the Bible. Uh, For example, Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, 4 is meant to be prayed at night as a psalm of reflection, uh, comfort, and security. Psalm 5 is a morning psalm meant to be prayed for all the the tasks and responsibilities and challenges of the day ahead. Psalm 103 is a psalm of praise for God's dealing with humanity. Psalm 104 is a psalm of praise for his dealing with the rest of creation. I believe last week's psalm, Psalm 128, and this week's Psalm 129 are written to be companion psalms. They're meant to be sung and prayed together. For a few reasons. One, they're written in a similar style in the Hebrew language. I won't bore you with those details. But both are, tr- closely, uh, both are closely tied together to God's covenant with his people. We'll get more on that in a bit. Both express a special concern, if you're looking at your Bibles now, for Zion, the, the mountain upon which God's kingdom was built. In verse 5, by the way, of each psalm, it mentions his concern For Zion, and each of these psalms deals with the different polarities of real-life experiences that we've all had. Psalm 128, handling prosperity in life, right? When the good times are good and good things are flowing to us. And Psalm 29 is about persevering through affliction. And these are the two sort of poles of life that we're often going between. So I've never said this before. I don't think I ever, and I never say it. Go back, if you weren't here last week, If you get a chance, go back and listen. I've never mentioned this either. We actually have something called a podcast on uh, Apple Music or uh, on Spotify. Uh, Sorry, Apple uh, Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, Other playlists, you can go on YouTube. You can go on our website. Always you can watch or listen to it. At a key point during our message, I'll refer to Psalm 28. But this week is Psalm 129, and it's a song of perseverance. It contains emotional wisdom to help us persevere through affliction. So again, last week, prosperity, and that's one experience we have, but we also go through affliction. And there are three movements in this prayer that help us persevere through affliction. And the first is to rightly mourn my affliction. Then we can express confidence that God will do what's right. And finally, rightly transfer my anger. And you'll notice the word right in all three of these points is that it's because that word is crucial. It, it, it turns out to be the turning point for every person who's going through affliction in life. So let's, let's move through this psalm of affliction together and see if it might help us persevere, maybe through some pain you're going through right now. The first movement we see in the psalm is to rightly mourn my affliction. It says, greatly Have they afflicted me from my youth? And the psalmist repeats this, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And in the middle, there's this odd phrase that says, let Israel now say. What's happening here, psalmist is identifying 
with Israel's history, the history of God's people, and, and God's, the history of God's people is, is identifying with the psalmist individually himself. Because what he's going through isn't just an isolated experience. It is the repeated experience of his people. Now, most, most nations celebrate, reflect upon what they have achieved as a nation. Israel reflects back on what she has survived as a nation. That is part of her history. In fact, there's an interesting story at the end of the 19th century. Frederick the Great, king of Prussia, what's now basically Austria-Germany, he began to doubt this kingdom, the validity of Christianity. So he was talking to his chaplain one day, and he said, hey, I'm at the point where I need to know if the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, you'll be able to give me a simple, short proof for the fact that it is really true and what it says. And the chaplain answered, I can give you, the, I can give you proof that the Bible is true in one word. Israel, he said. And with that, Frederick, as he reflected, fell silent. Why? Because millennia of persecution, countless attempted genocides towards Israel, more than one. Other nations, its small size in the ancient world, were all eventually decimated. And yet this tiny little country, this tiny people, Israel, manages over and over again to survive. As the psalmist says here in verse 2, yet they have not prevailed against me. And that is the theme of Israel and its history, yet they have not prevailed against me. And they is a key word here because we're not talking about affliction or pain in general. We're talking about pain that others have afflicted upon God's people. There is a they in this. We're talking about persecution specifically. A persecution of, of one's is, is inflicting pain upon one's, someone because of their love for God, their commitment to his message. And for us, as Christians, that, that, that message is the good news about Jesus. And that's important to Christianity because persecution specifically has to do with being persecuted for making that central to our lives. And the good news is a reminder. It begins with God, our creator, who was and is so full of love that his love overflowed in the creation of human beings to share that love with. He invited us to love him back with all of who we are and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. But sadly, the very first humans decided to love self more than God and other things more than neighbors. A tragic pattern that, that continues to this day, such that every person who's born is born separated in relationship to God. But God, he didn't let his love for humanity wane. At just the right time, he sent his one and only son into the world to live the perfect life of love that you and I fell short of living and to die the death, out of love, die the death you and I deserved. He then raised Jesus from the dead to prove that all those promises of love were true, forever forgiveness, and God with us always and no matter what. And that is the good news about Jesus. Genuine persecution is being mocked, hurt, excluded for a commitment to that good news message. The commitment to it being central to all of life. So in verse 3 we read, The plowers plowed upon my back. They have made their furrows. Now does the psalmist mean here, mean here a literal back or, or metaphorically trampling upon him, trampling upon his back? We don't know either. But either way, it's a powerful image, right, of sustained, focused, determined cruelty. 
towards a person, meant to last season after season. In the ancient Near East, by this time, farmers had long since begun using iron plowshares pulled by oxen to begin planting and hopefully eventually getting a harvest. In other words, the bluntest, heaviest instrument being pulled by your strongest animal and doing so season after season would create the furrows in the land, sustained pathways that would show up even in the dirt because they were so grounded out every season. They'd done permanent damage in a way. And that's what the psalmist is admitting here. He's admitting, he's courageously mourning out loud what the cruelty has done to his life and how it's taken its toll in him. It has created something in him that he, he can't just get rid of on his own. Who did this to this man? Was it, was it the Philistines? Maybe it was the Babylonians? What, what, who among God's enemies would do this? But here's the crazy part. The twist about this whole psalm is that his persecutors are among his fellow people. They're among God's people. This is interesting, right? Skip with me, if you would, to verse 8. He's been cursing his persecutors to God's ears, and we get to verse 8, and we read, Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. He said, well, During the harvest time in Israel, it was a common practice to bless those who worked in the fields as you would pass by. So you're passing by just that morning, and you would bless people in the fields during harvest time. There's an example of this in the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 2. This man named Boaz is approaching a field, and he says to his harvesters, hey, the Lord be with you. And they answer, like, oh, the Lord bless you. It was just common practice. So for the psalmist to pray, Lord, don't give them this blessing. Don't give my persecutors this blessing. It's because they would want it and expect it. It's because his persecutors are among God's people. Sad, right? Now, what does this mean for us? I'm curious, by the way. Church people or non-church people? Who has hurt you more in life? Church people or non-church people? Maybe we'll see a show of hands here. I'm curious. Do a little sociologist work here, right? Uh, raise your hand if it's church people who have hurt you more. Okay, raise your hand if it's non-church people. Interesting. There were some people among us. <laughs> I know for me personally, I've been hurt more often and more deeply by God's people than I have by people in the world. <laughs> some others agree with me out there. I hear you, brother. And it's crazy to say this, right? Because Christians should be all about the centrality of the good news about Jesus and committing our lives to this, having joy because of the good news and, and making that be the thing we commit our lives to, why would, why would other people in the church hurt others because we're all about the good news? Create pain, maybe it's pride, uh, shame, uh, insecurities, control issues that certain people in church have because of their positions, putting themselves, putting oneself over Jesus. Some people just like to make mountains out of molehills, Right? And you get, maybe you're just an innocent, you get caught in between the crossfire as people in church kind of do that. <laughs> I'll say this, people do come and go from a church. I've been here a couple years, and I'm grateful that more people have come than gone, but they do go. And when people go as a pastor, I got to tell you, I almost always ask the question, was I the reason? Was it me? I was, oh, that's where my, it's like my default mindset. I, 
I just always go to, Lord, what did I do? <laughs> and until all, most of the time, it's not like me specifically and whatever. That's just how I work. But I can say on two occasions, it was me. They told me so. And both times, it was, it was hurtful. It was painful. Uh, once, it was over the... It, both times, it wasn't anything about me personally. It was about... It, once, it was over the sanctity of marriage between a believing man and a believing woman. And I wouldn't really budge on the issue. And they wouldn't leave. They left because of that. Another time, it was telling someone that I would welcome anyone to be a member of the church regardless if they held a different view of when life begins in the womb. People have differences of opinion on that. They'd still be welcome. These conversations were, of course, private, but they were painful. And you might ask, hey, why were you flexible on when life begins, but less so on marriage? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage uniquely reflects the good news about Jesus in a way that no other relationship does. So marriage is like a... It's like a movie for people who haven't read the book about the good news of Jesus. And so it's uniquely important. And that's my whole point. It all comes back to the centrality of the good news as a church. Something I explained in both conversations. Hey, we're going to keep the good news about Jesus the main thing in the church. And in one situation, I understand left-leaning Christians may be angry with me. And the other situations, right-leaning Christians may be angry with me. By the way, welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe I'm describing you as well. Maybe I'm describing your life. Christians who, who, other Christians who want you to be on their side, on some sort of thing, some sort of lesser issue. And if you're not, sometimes they feel shunned by them or excluded, less invited. Um, yeah. If you keep your eyes on the good news as central, one side sometimes seems as soft, the other side seems as intolerant. But to be excluded, to be backbited, to be sneered at, to have people relationally leave your life, it's painful. It just is. It sticks with you. And our psalmist this morning is, is verbally mourning that pain that sticks with him. Not only am I hurting, I'm hurting from my own people. He's mourning that. And so should we. We should be free to express to God. The reality is I've been hurt. And it has created some scars on me. Say it out loud. That's the first movement this morning. That's then the longest one. The second movement is this, to express confidence then that the Lord does right. Mourn the pain, then express confidence that the Lord will do right by you or has done right by you. The first part of this, verse 4, if you look at your Bible, says the Lord is righteous. The second part, the psalmist explains how he's righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now the first image, the Im sorry, the image here, he's cut the cords of the wicked, is, is that as that the oxen are still moving, the ox herd is behind the oxen, still shouting commands to go forward and plow, but the plows are now unattached. It's kind of a unique image and creative. The harness cords connecting the plow, you'll see it up here on the screen, to the oxen have been severed. Those cords are no longer there. So the oxen, it's almost comical, is saying, go, go, go oxen, and they're going, and he's, he's pretending to plow, but as Eugene Peterson said on reflecting on this psalm, he said, the plows of persecution aren't working, and the persecutor hasn't even noticed. They just keep going forward. Keeps on plowing ahead. I want to connect that back to the first half of this verse, where it says, the Lord, does, the Lord is righteous. The Lord does what is right. He has supremely done so in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus lived the perfect life of love you and I couldn't live and match up to. And he died the death we deserve. And in doing so, he exchanged places with us. He also exchanged scorecards with us as well. The Bible says he put all our wrongdoing upon himself and he put all his right doing upon us on the cross. He put all, all our wrongdoing went upon him, all his right doing went upon us. And the Bible calls this righteousness. God has done right to us. He's done righteousness to us. Any and everyone who trusts in Jesus is permanently right with God. And his righteousness cuts the cords of the wicked. See, that comes back to that image of the plow, right? And those cords being cut. His, again, his righteousness is what cuts the cords of the wicked. Think of it. When someone is cruel to you, treats you unjustly, shuns you in some way, what, what is the worst part of that? What's the worst? It's usually the quiet that follows, right? The moment is painful, but all the moments following when you're in your car and it's quiet, when you go home and you're by yourself and you're soul searching, you're wondering why, there's the internal doubt even of like, well, maybe that person is right. Maybe, that, maybe I am that way. But when you know you're relationally right with God, like no matter what, relationally right with him, you can't be abandoned. You can't be shunned because God is always with you. Real or imagined guilt can't crush you because Jesus already took the guilt upon himself for you on the cross. When you're insulted and mocked, those labels have weaker adhesive than being a permanent member of God's family, which is a name tag stuck to you forever, etched upon you. Nothing can touch you even as they think they're still plowing furrows onto your back. They still think they can hurt you, but in reality, nothing can ultimately touch you because you're right with God forever. He is righteous by you. When others hurt us, the psalmist reminds us perseverance involves expressing confidence that I'm right with God forever and no matter what. And because of that, they can keep trying, but ultimately they can't touch me. That's the second movement in our prayer this morning. The third movement of prayer is to rightly transfer my anger. There's so much emotional wisdom, by the way, in what the psalmist does here in expressing his anger. First of all, he reiterates what is real persecution. If you look at verse 5, he says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Persecution just isn't just about someone being mean to me. It's when someone opposes God's kingdom, what the message of the kingdom, the good news about Jesus. And when expressing anger even to God, we got to be careful that it doesn't devolve simply into self-pity. It's also about God's honor and his reputation. Second reason it's so wise here, expressing anger to God, is first expressing anger to God is the right way to transfer our anger. In both the Old and New Testaments, the Bible says to be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin, which sounds contradictory, right? How can you be angry and do not sin? Some of you are like, oh, I'm grateful to hear that. <laughs> I can be angry and maybe I'm not sinning. Well, let me explain. Anger is, is itself a necessary emotion. And not just because the Pixar movie Inside Out told us that. All right, although that was a wonderful depiction of it. I gotta say, it was a wonderful movie, great depiction. But anger can be a way of saying, hey, what you're doing, this matters, and it's wrong. 
This both matters and it's wrong. And it's right to have anger as a way of noting, our, noting to ourselves and to others that God, hey God, this, what's happening is wrong. The problem with anger is that it can't be destroyed. You guys ever heard of the law of the conservation of energy? The whole idea behind it is that energy cannot be destroyed, but only transferred or converted. That's how anger works as well. Anger can't be destroyed. It can only be transferred, eventually converted. We think by stuffing it down deep, we'll just destroy it, right? That maybe if, we, if left time passes, it won't bother us anymore until it suddenly spills out into the innocent in our life, right? A stranger, a friend, a spouse, a child. We come home, we launch into some sort of tirade about why dishes aren't done and why rooms are never clean. And it's not really about those things or those people. It's about the anger we've carried with us in that situation, right? Or we're getting defensively angry at a clerk because our credit card's been declined. Like, this shouldn't happen. Why is this happening? It's not about the clerk. The clerk's like, what's what is this? It's because we've had anger we've tried to stuff down and we haven't transferred it but you got to there's an anger there's a pain at having been wrong and it's a pain that only god can take and not only does he take it he welcomes it that's why we have so many parts of the psalms that where, where you see the psalmist express anger towards someone else because god is saying hey i can take it i can absorb it you can say to god as it says pretty much here Put them to shame. Don't let their plans come to harvest. Don't bless their efforts, God. Because before anyone can replace anger with love, you first need to find a place for your anger. And God wants to absorb it. That's a wonderful news. The psalmist trusts that God will hear him. Why? Because defending his people when they are wrong is part of his deal or his covenant with his people. It's part of the deal. This covenant, this old covenant, is good but incomplete. And that is why Psalm 128 and Psalm 129 are connected, back to where we were from the beginning. That is why they are companion psalms. Last week we discussed Psalm 128, how it's connected with God's deal or covenant with his people. We said that it's good, but it's incomplete, that old covenant. But under the new deal, or the new covenant with Jesus, good things get even better. Last week we saw uh, physical abundance and physical fruit as a sign of prosperity, but in Jesus it becomes spiritual fruit to share with the whole world. Uh, last week we saw how uh, a sign of prosperity is having a family with physical kids, and Jesus, it becomes about growing God's family by making spiritual kids, by making disciples. And we see how good things get even better and more abundant, through the new deal, through the new covenant with Jesus, good things get even better. That's my quick summary. Okay. This leads us into a mysterious fourth movement that helps us persevere through affliction when we go through it. It's not mentioned in the psalm, but it's mentioned in the new deal with Jesus. And that is to love your enemies by praying for those who persecute you. Love your enemies by praying for those who persecute you. Praying for their welfare. Not just praying anger about them, then praying for their welfare. I'll tell you a quick story. The Christian um, Ten Boom family of the Netherlands, they hid Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam. Eventually, they were all caught for hiding Jews in their home. They were shipped to a concentration camp in Ravensbrück. A few guards were especially cruel towards uh, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister. 
the latter of whom didn't make it out alive. Well, after the war, Corey returned to, Germany, to the defeated Germany to preach the good news about how God forgives his enemies in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are empowered to forgive our enemies. After one talk on this subject, she was speaking with interested listeners, and all of a sudden she went pale. She was unable to talk. She was just frozen because she saw across the room a man walking towards her who was unmistakably the same guard responsible for her sick sister getting even sicker while in the concentration camp and not making it out. Sees her walking towards her. Walks up to her, says to her, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. Clearly he didn't remember Corey. Since that time... I've become a Christian, and I know now that God has forgiven me for, for the cruel and awful things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. He, he put out his hand to shake hers. Will, will you forgive me? While well, she struggled with what to say in this moment, she knew the right thing to do, but in her heart of heart, she had been praying prayers of anger towards these same men. And, so in that moment, she just said a little prayer to God, Jesus, help me. I was once your enemy, but now I'm family. She remembers she was once God's enemy as well. And because of that, she was able, God helped her say the words, and she prayed for that man, prayed for his family, prayed for his welfare, and for his goodness, and for love, and all those things. And yeah, back to verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. Friends, we can, we can pray for the welfare of our enemies because Jesus not only endured on his back the marks of enemies, but he made those enemies family members. Indeed, it was by the wounds on his back, it was, it was by his stripes that former enemies like you and me are healed. And that is good news. So this morning... Let's use this emotional wisdom. We're going to close this morning by using this wisdom to form a prayer of our own. So pray along with me, if you will. And I want you to keep in mind someone maybe who you've held some bitterness towards or has been angry towards you or, or, or excluded you or shunned you. Keep that person in mind even as we pray. Father, I acknowledge to you and mourn the pain that I've felt, that I still feel from, from others having hurt me for slandering me, for excluding me. It hurts. And it's even worse that it comes from a family member, your family, a Christian. Yet I express that because you've made me forever right because of Jesus, their hurtfulness ultimately cannot touch me. You're always with me. You took upon yourself my guilt, my shame. You call me a better name now, a child, an heir with Jesus Christ. Thank you. So as I express that confidence, I also would ask that you would, you would push back those who've done me wrong, thwart their purposes so their cycle of hurt wouldn't hurt other people either. I pray they would recognize you, Jesus, see you for the first time, or return to the first love that they have. Do a work in them to help them turn to you, to experience your great love now and forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.